Welcome to Strength in the Numbers. My name is Andrew Codd, accountant, author, and commercial finance entrepreneur. And it's my job each week to bring you leaders in finance and business and deconstruct with them their real stories, insights, and hard-won lessons into practical advice on the key strengths and qualities you need to remain relevant in accounting and finance today, as well as the steps you can begin to take to elevate the impact you make to have a fun, successful, and rewarding career in accounting and finance. Now let's go over to the show. Hi everyone and welcome to this week's Strength in the Numbers. I'm really delighted to share with you today this week's guest mentor, Chris Bellchamber. And one of the really cool things about having Chris on the show this week is that he shares a different side of finance that a lot of us probably haven't had the chance to get involved with. We might have dabbled with investing and stock shares, bonds and, and commodities and so on. But Chris has been trading all his life and turned a lot of that knowledge into a recent book, Invest Like the Best, which is built on those many years worth of experience, but also his very popular blog at chrisbellchamber.com. So although a lot of the advice comes from the investment community, we do our best to try and apply it to the lives, the roles of finance professionals, finance leaders, and finance teams in general. And some of the key topics we actually unpick together is the importance of aggressively managing risk, over simply chasing returns. I think that's a very key point we shouldn't lose sight of. Also, uh, what is system one and system two thinking? Some of you might have heard this come up before, but where we take that topic with Chris is actually on how we as finance professionals can use this awareness, how our brains operate, and actually use it to our advantage in making better decisions within our organizations. And of course, it wouldn't be complete having Chris on the show and not asking him and, and him sharing where the astute investors are being clever with their capital and their money at the moment. So look, hope you really enjoyed this episode. And if you did, you can find out more about Chris, the key quotes, detailed timestamp show notes, transcripts, and more at sitnshow.com. And we really appreciate you tuning in today. So that's enough from me. So without further ado, over to Chris and the show. Chris? Welcome to the show. Hi, Andrew. Glad to be here. It's our pleasure to have you and really excited to share you with our audience because they might know it from previous conversations I've had on the show with other guest mentors, but I did have a fascination with financial markets and investing when I was younger, but then I got too stuck in accounting on my journey. But I suppose in terms of your career journey, I'd love if maybe you could describe how you got to where you got to before we go into the rest of the interview. Uh, yes, I was a mathematician coming out of college and wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So I started out doing two jobs at the same time. I was an actuarial trainee and a computer programmer. I enjoyed the computer programming, but I got distracted when I reached the investment part of the actuarial training. And I knew that this is what excited me, what I wanted to do. And that drew me into Big Bang in sort of 1986 when... London went international. And so it was a really good sort of time to be involved and, and to get started. So I never really looked back. I think a lot of audience can relate, maybe falling in love with the numbers and the techniques and understanding how businesses work and, and where value comes from and stuff like that. But before we jump into some ideas on that, I just want to get a sense of when you were going through your career, you probably experienced a lot of economic ups and downs and the expression change is constant is there any point during your career that particularly stood out that was quite memorable had a big impact on you 
But yeah, 1987 was certainly uh, a fascinating time. <laughs> the first one. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I was an options trader. I've never really been that comfortable being short options. I always think about that. So I was always worried about tails, as you call it. And so fortunately, I wasn't short options. But actually, some people near me were, and they got taken out. Yeah, it was pretty rough. 20% in a day is unusual. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and and, and so new into your career, that must have been quite scary. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And I was newly on the trading desk because I really was an analyst to begin with, but that was when I started trading. So I was on the trading desk at that time, writing a book as I was trading, which is crazy. And actually the, the cameras were actually in the company I worked for at the time, Credit Suisse First Boston. And I actually saw the cameras. They did a show on TV afterwards, which was actually in the office. And they had this picture of a trader saying, well, the offer is this and the bid is. This. <laughs> it certainly makes you think. Yeah. And it, it was quite amazing because myself and another analyst had actually gone around. We'd produced a paper in the summer of 1987 saying, you need to be careful about equities. How about selling equities and buying index and gilts? Just hedge yourself up a little bit. So we trolled around all these institutional investment houses. And as is typical, when that is such a, the equity market is so powerful, no one will listen. So we went in and we had so many people, big investment managers of institutions and yeah, yeah. no one would listen. It's funny how everyone just gets caught up in the moment and gets anchored to recent conditions. And once you're in that behavior, just things won't come out. So unless you have a discipline where you're saying, okay, let's be honest, what is the prospective return here? And able to analyze that and say, okay, it's a nice trend, but look at the territory we're in. And you would think that a lot of asset managers would look at it that way, but I think people get very caught up in the near-term price performance and don't yeah. want to move away. I love them to get into some of these things because you wrote a rather excellent book, packaging a lot of those experiences in and making sense of it all. Like with that example, it's a very good example of recency bias and then the loss aversion as well. There's so much in your book I would just love to unpick with you. I don't think we'll have enough time, but we will share your right. contact details at the end so our audience can follow up with you. But I suppose in terms of the key themes from your book, I really appreciated how you you called out that we need to aggressively manage risk. Where were you coming from when you talked about that? Um, I think it's something that you know I've always been aware of when I talk to people, that people don't really think enough about risk. Whenever you talk to people, they will talk about, oh, I picked that stock and it went up 50%. I'm a genius. They well, want to talk at least about one. Their <laughs> <laughs> they always want to talk about their returns. True. And all of us occasionally have a good return on something or our portfolio. That's just part of being involved. The market goes up and you're long. It's a great feeling. But the point of investing is to end up way ahead over 5, 10, 20, 30 years. That's what's important. And if you've got all your money in the stock market in 1987 or March 2000 or September 2008, you're going to lose 
a lot of your money and it's going to take be an awful struggle to get back. And in one of the chapters, chapter six, I analyze the dynamics of compound interest. It's not that complicated, really, but it's so important and people don't think like that. They don't think that actually, if you're just trying to compound at 4%, say, which is a very modest objective, and you lose 20% in a year, to get back to that compound 4% the next year, you have to make 35%. You have to make almost double the gain just to stay on a 4% track. The easier way is to avoid that 20%. <laughs> but people think like that. The book is about how to invest like the best and what the best investors do. All of them, without exception, think the priority is risk. I think that I start that chapter, which is yeah. chapter five, about what are the principles. And I use Warren Buffett and Seth Klarman. And in their two quotes, they use the word never three times. Never <laughs> put return ahead of risk. And that's pretty emphatic for guys who compounded 20% for decades. That shows where their priorities are. Maybe counterintuitive is the wrong word, but it really runs counter to a lot of the financial headlines we see in the papers, which is generally, if you think about it, all about the great returns people are making. No one ever really puts risk first, which has did a great job managing risk over this period of time and therefore doesn't have to work as hard to make back the loss or something like that. And it's not put in that longer term perspective as well. Actually, I've always wondered, Chris, any ideas why that is? Why people are so focused on return and maybe pay less attention to risk? I think it's just behavioral. People just want people. something that's exciting. So someone's getting rich. I could get rich too. And I could get rich quickly. Those are behavioral triggers that people just can't uh, avoid affecting them. And so it's great for the media. It's great if you're an asset manager selling. You can say, oh, we made 20% last year. Those return numbers can be very dangerous. I mean, in the book, in chapter four, I talk about John Merriweather long-term capital, and he made 300% in three years at, I think, I don't know, about 10 Nobel Prize winning scientists on his team. He had a fantastic reputation and everything, and more or less the, most of his clients were investment professionals from across Wall Street. Most people thought, I just don't have to worry, this guy's going to make 100% every year. <laughs> yeah. and people just get caught up in that and then of course in a few months he goes bankrupt because they're just so obsessed by the return not thinking about the risk and i actually yeah. met john merriweather in 1997 the head of the european office of long-term capital management spent a day with me i was on the jp morgan trading desk and i didn't realize it but they were looking for someone to join them. And so we spent a day and we got on pretty well. And then he, got, he invited me, why don't you come over and see our shop? Which was a fabulous office, of course, in Barclay Square, just off Regent Street. So I wandered over there and I sat down and we started talking and said, oh, oh, by the way, uh, here's John Merriweather. Would you like to meet, meet him? <laughs> okay, yeah, that'd be nice. So we sat down and we had a long conversation. Clearly they were looking for a partner or something like that after three years of 300%. And we talked a lot, but it was interesting that when we talked about risk, 
the energy in our conversation suddenly took a dive. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah, it turned out, and there's a lot of links about what was really going on at long-term capital that I didn't really know, but I sensed the energy on the risk thing. It turned out they had $4 billion in capital, and they had $125 billion in positions. Yeah. So they were leveraged 30 times. You get like a 5% adverse move in their portfolio, and they're insolvent. So while the bull market's going on, sure, yeah, you can make 100%. But how are you going to get out? How are you going to know you're going to avoid just a 5% adverse move in your portfolio? In retrospect, now that I read what was actually going on, it was an accident waiting to happen. But you yeah, had the whole experts across Wall Street invested <laughs> in this fund. Yeah, so-called experts. So it wasn't, the partners had their money in this fund. This is an industry that has got risk and return all figured out. We're the pros. We'll help you because we you know about that. No. What investors need to understand is there is massive endemic confusion about risk and return right to the very top of Wall Street. When you lay it out like that, Chris, it does seem very profound, but look at the examples and time and again. We see it coming again and again. And, yeah. and actually, the long-term capital management, when I was studying financial economics at school, I loved the math behind it. I thought it was very elegant and it felt like it was a money-making machine. I could see how people fell in love mm. with it. But I suppose as more recent times as a finance professional, we come across techniques, pre-mortems, where you look at the downsides of a decision before you make it to at least mm. flesh out what might cause something to go wrong. Yeah. It's talk of that risk side of the equation. Yep. But it mm. is interesting how experts or so-called experts get caught up in, in waves of things. And, and right. I feel that's where sometimes you need to have a break. And that's what I love when you explore Daniel Kahneman's System 1 and System 2 thinking. I thought it was really well done. Because even that baseball bat experiment he runs, it's so easy for people who should know better to make the wrong judgment. So if you just mind just maybe sharing with our audience what you're proposing there on the system side of thing. How to deal with the... How, how to deal uh, with the system, system one, system two. Oh, system right. Two. Yes, absolutely. There's a part of your brain, system one, which generally gets in the way of you being successful because it's emotional, it's reactive. There's not a lot of thought that goes into what you're doing. It's behavioral. So you really need to understand yourself and those triggers that are in you and have a checklist so that you won't get triggered or those parts of you that have anxiety will actually be controlled in some way. And then once that's under control, there's the other part of your brain, which is the chess player, the strategic aspect where you're calm and you can think back and you can see the pros and the cons and you can work it out what makes sense. Now, the, the problem with that second part, the strategic part, system two, is that most people find that's exhausting and time-consuming and all of those things. So to help raise that part of your game, that's where you can use software. So software can be a, such a game-changer. And some of the best investors that I mention in the book, and the most famous is Jim Simons with the Renaissance Fund, which you see his results, is completely automated. He and a lot of the best investors, they've realized that their own viewpoint or opinion about a trade 
is typically much worse than the system they develop. Even the most famous investors surrender their own thinking entirely to their system because they've just learned that their system becomes more reliable. Jim Simons, <laughs> definitely. Uh, you know, I've many others I could mention. That is probably the extreme, but I think that most of the best investors use systems in some kind of way to, to a degree. When you were running through that example of Jim Simons, it's not a case that it's passive investing, which we hear this phrase of. It's actually you're continually evaluating. In fact, you are controlling, you're continually monitoring the situation. Yeah, the risk is real time. The idea that there is a single static factor which describes a person and a single static factor that describes a portfolio and that you can simply take that portfolio off the shelf and apply it to <laughs> that person and then say, okay, we've done our job, see you six months later. Yeah. That is standard procedure for a number of, of areas. But in March of 2020, volatility went from 11 to 85 in five weeks. Now, what portfolio or person was feeling stable and able to just say, oh, it'll work out. That didn't work out very well in, in 2000 or 2008. We only recovered because we had the biggest stimulus we've ever seen in history at the end of March. And we're still trying to figure out what all that means. Yeah, so this idea that you can not pay attention uh, and I say at the beginning, I use the quote, like Keith McCulloch of Hedgeye basically says that to be a successful long-term investor, you need to be able to actively manage risk. Uh, so that's a quote out of the, the horse's mouth, as it were, but I think they would all agree with that. This idea of passive investing, I spend a large amount of time in chapter eight about it. And I use a quote from Benjamin Graham that you'll basically become price insensitive about buying it. You see, you just have to be invested. It doesn't matter when you do it. And you don't, as we just discussed, you don't react either. And so I actually put Benjamin Graham's quote, which he wrote in the 1930s, looking back at what happened in 1929. And he said, passive investing in the 1930s, he said, looking back at the 1929 collapse, could not possibly do anything other than fail. And today we have more passive investors than ever before because they're behavioral, because the market keeps on going up. When it comes back, you've got massive fiscal and monetary inputs that's going to keep it going. The central banks have become helicopter parents for the markets. <laughs> and that reinforces that viewpoint. And people get anchored into that. And Great. Actually, you can trade that very well, but you need to know at the same time that you need to have a time horizon that makes sense for what you're doing. And you need to realize that if you're a passive investor, you have a very long time horizon and you're not going to react. Now you can do the sums. Okay. I buy a bond yielding 0.6 for 10 years, which is where the 10-year treasury got to. And you can say, is that going to make me rich? You'd have to believe that interest rates were going negative or, and what about inflation and taxes? And there's no prospective return in bonds. 
So, but, but it is interesting because if equities are at risk of overheating at the moment or whatever, where does the astute investor then look to be clever with their capital and put their money? There's always someone somewhere to go. Money will always go somewhere. And sometimes yeah. it needs to go to cash. Uh, yeah, I think I wrote at the beginning of 2020, I wrote a blog which saying basically we're, we have a prospective return crisis, which is only going to get worse. <laughs> so in other words, what you have to do is you have to come shorter term because the markets could carry on up. But that means you need to buy the dips and sell the rallies kind of thing. So you're accumulating safely. So when the big fall does come, you're out. And if you don't have a process for doing that, and you're just sitting there, you'll have a sort of John Merriweather outcome. You can make a huge amount of money, and then you lose it all. What's the point of that? And I don't think people are, again, looking at the prospective return, like we talked about 1987. Now you can just draw a line over the last 40 years of the price-to-sales ratio and then the subsequent 10-year return from the S&P 500. Mm. And you get a very accurate a regression line. And obviously, the higher the price ratio, the worse your 10-year return. And where we've got to right now is we, we're right on the very end of this line. And John Hussman has done all this. He's a PhD from Michigan University wonderful website it does all these these sums and regressions and what have you right now your expected return from the price to sales ratio which is the cleanest metric you have because no one can really define earnings very uniquely as it were but price to sales you can't mess with sales yeah today your expected return is minus five percent every year for 10 years if you just sit there and yet, at the same time, we have more passive investors than we've ever had before. So no one that was, is interested uh, in a, your prospective return or risk management or short-term risk management. But for me, that was one of the most powerful charts in your book. And I have to say that was really profound. I'd never seen an analysis like that. And I would never have thought about mm -hmm. looking at a financial ratio in that way. So that really right. rammed it home to me. And again, that's why I just feel like that chart and how it's treated in the book is worth the price of entry. <laughs> it's fantastic. Fantastic, Chris. You've been giving us some fantastic advice. And I said I could keep you on forever asking these questions. But I suppose in terms of yourself, what's been the best bit of advice you've ever received in your career? I think there's probably a number of things. I think don't lose money. Stay in the game. If you lose money, you're out of the game. Don't do Back that. Another one that I've heard and said this to some extent, and a, a contemporary hedge fund manager, a guy called Mike Taylor, also says it. And I think it's, don't be right, make money. Because a lot of investors put a huge amount of effort into being right. Look, I bought the stock. I really think I'm right about the theory about this. And you're tied up in the theory. And... You've got to realize that when you go into investing, you're, you've entered an arena you don't control, uh, but you do control yourself. And however smart you are, you're going to be wrong a lot. And if you're, as George Soros said, it doesn't matter whether you're right or wrong. It only matters how much you lose when you're wrong and how much you make when you're right. 
And that's, yeah. I think people really need to look at things in that very basic way. It's it, in many ways, what is more important than why? It doesn't mean you shouldn't spend a lot of time doing analysis and what have you. I spend a huge amount of time on that. But at the end of the day, whatever idea you're, done, you're doing, you're in the market, you have a position. You don't know what's going to happen. You know, you just don't know. And you have to be able to manage that risk. And if the market at that time, that place doesn't like your idea, get out. <laughs> because however well received your idea is, for whatever reason, and it doesn't matter what the reason is, you're going to lose money. So I, I think there's a lot of traps like that that people fall in, into, and you have to learn how to avoid that and you know, do what works. I think that's a great advice. And actually that's, again, I think that was another good thing about your book that if you're investing like the best, you got to look at what works and also you examine some bits of what didn't work as well, which again, I think it's very useful to see both sides. There's, I think there's too much focus on survivorship right. bias uh, and a lot of these things. So I think yeah. it's important to see the other side of it. And that helps with the, the focus on risk management as well, because that's a fundamental part of the value equation, right? It's the denominator so you've managed that well, right. you increase the potential, the expected value goes up overall. I often overlooked, I think that the returns is like the sexy bit, the Wolf of Wall Street piece. Right. The risk is the unglamorous piece. And I suppose if we're doing analysis and looking at things and wanting to be right, we need to look at the risk as well involved. And I think that was your advice, Chris, it's fantastic. If our audience are trying to check out resources to learn more about this, I'm obviously going to put a link to your book in the show notes. Are there any useful websites or the books they should go check out in your mind, Chris? Uh, yeah, so there are lots of great books. You know, Benjamin Graham, as I mentioned, is he yes. wrote the classic, The Intelligent Investor. That's great. I follow people. I follow Hedgeye. He has a book club. He's re he tries to oh. read a book every 10 days. And he can share that on his website. And he's constantly learning you know a lot there's a wonderful book about poker and how people behave in poker and it has enormous parallels with investing so yeah there's a huge amount i would definitely be an avid reader you can never learn too much i basically write a lot of blogs and very often i use other people's intelligence as well as my own so that's on chrisbellchamber.com i've just started an instagram site it is investlikethebest.book and that is going step by step all the way through the book, all the insights and I'm mixing in some other things as well, which will oh, interesting. So, so that's a really good resource for taking a, a quick overview of the book without having to read it. Although reading it is better. <laughs> so that's a good way to follow and read and see what's in there. Yeah. So that's it. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm very prolific on LinkedIn and yeah, that's basically where you can find out more. So look, I'm going to, do my best, Chris, to capture all those links, put them into the show notes. And interesting about the Instagram one, I'd love to hear how you get on. I've always got mixed emotions about Instagram. Right. I'm not a big user myself, but I know a lot of our listeners are using it more. So again, it's maybe that's something we should get more onto as well. But thanks for those tips. Look, I really enjoyed our conversation. We've only skimmed the main areas of the book. There was so much more in there. But in terms of wrapping up, would you have any parting thoughts for our audience to consider? Yeah, I think that as I it's in the conclusion, I basically say that investors have a choice about how much 
their destiny is going to be dependent on luck and how much is going to be dependent on developing their own skillful process. And so I think people, to the extent that you don't have a clear process about how you go about investing, is also the extent that you're bringing in luck to your outcome. So you need to think about that. And you need to get yourself some standards and get yourself to a place what the best investors do. You don't have to ask anyone else's opinion. You have the tools, you have the metrics, how to assess your performance. If you do all that, you're taking back control of how you invest. That's really what I want people to be able to move towards. Take out the luck and bring in the successful path of the best investors. And the thing is, you're going to be taking less risk, not more. You're going to have take out the stress, all those things, and you're going to do better. Is that's that's what I experience, and that's what the best investors experience. So think about that. What a great way to wrap up the show. I feel like we could do a whole podcast just on that parting thought as well, but I've got to draw it there. Be respectful of your time, Chris. Thank you so much for being such a great guest mentor and strength in the numbers. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. So there you have it. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to know more about our guests today, their bio, and follow up on the resources mentioned during the show, you can find all the relevant links and more at sitnshow.com. There you'll also be able to get access to earlier shows, read the latest blogs. There's also an opportunity to subscribe to our newsletter, which will give you heads up as to when the next show is coming out, latest events, news, and anything that's going to be relevant to help you have a fun, rewarding, and successful career in finance and accounting. And just before you go, we really appreciate your feedback. If there's something we can do better on the show, something that's not working, or something you'd like to see, even a guest you'd like for us to invite onto the show, someone who you think might be able to benefit you more and also the rest of our community, please let me know. You can email me. I'm at andrew at sitnshow.com or feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Just drop me a message so I know how you found me and we can connect. And really, it's our community that will make the show. If we keep engaging and driving each other on, we'll keep on building our strength in the numbers. When all is said and done, if we can do the numbers better and finance better, we'll create more opportunities for ourselves, our friends, our families, our communities and our businesses. So until next time, have a good rest of the week. Take care and let's keep building our strength in the numbers.